If you are looking for even more help and guidance on your breakup, I have a few different options for you to take your healing to the next level. I have four different online courses depending on what stage of the breakup that you're in from beginning all the way into moving on after heartbreak, or you can bundle all of my courses together and use the code podcast to get $25 off my course bundle. I also have my 30 day no contact challenge to help hold you accountable in going no contact with your ex. And we have our free Facebook group, Healing Hearts Club, where you can connect with other people going through breakups all over the world. To learn more about any of these resources, head to the show notes where you can learn more about my courses, take the quiz to figure out which course is best for you, or join the Facebook group. And don't forget to use the code PODCAST to get $25 off my course bundle. Welcome to the Heal Your Heartbreak podcast with your host, Breakup Bestie, aka me, Kendra. Breakups are hard, but you don't have to do it alone. Each week, I will be taking you through a different topic as it relates to breaking up, healing from heartbreak, growing in your single life, dating, and getting back into happier and healthier relationships. The goal of this show is to provide support, hope, tips, and to remind you that above all, this too shall pass. Welcome to another expert episode of the podcast. Today, we are talking all about anxious attachment style with seasoned psychotherapist and couples counselor, Jessica Baum. And she is also the author of the new book, Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love. You guys have heard me talk about attachment theory. We've had an expert on attachment theory on the podcast before, but Jessica really did the research on anxious attachment style. And what was so fascinating to me, I am someone who has an anxious attachment style. She really talks about how the nervous system of someone who is anxiously attached is impacted in relationships, which I was always someone that felt like I was constantly in a state of fight or flight in my relationships until I was able to really become like a secure being with other things, like a whole and complete person within relationships instead of relying on the other person to make me feel okay. And Jessica developed in her private practice, this healing modality called being self full. And she really talks about how you can exist in a secure, peaceful relationship, even with an anxious attachment style. So talking about how to feel more grounded in yourself, how to develop relationships outside of just a romantic partner who can help ground you and help you feel less anxious. And I just loved her approach so much. I think so many people who have anxious attachment style feel like they're doomed in future relationships or feel like they have to find someone who is able to always make them feel okay. When in reality, there are so many things you can do on an individual level. And then so many things you can do within your support system outside of relationships. And I love how she talks about that. So if you love this episode, which I know you will, I hope you'll go out and get her book anxiously attached. I just started it and I am already learning so much about myself and it will not only help me on an individual level, but in my marriage and in relationships. So I am so excited to bring Jessica on to the podcast and I know you will enjoy this interview as much as I did. Welcome Jessica to the podcast. So happy to have you on today and talk about anxious attachment style. 
Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So longtime listeners of the podcast, we have touched on attachment style. I talk about it a lot just because it was something that was really like pivotal for me in my relationship journey. The first time I read the book Attached, it was like really blew my mind open. So I'm so fascinated with this. I also happen to be an anxious attachment style person. So this is something that I love learning about for myself as well, even within a relationship. So for those that don't know, could you just give a brief description of what attachment theory is? Sure. Yeah. For anybody who's listening, attachment theory is a very scientifically proven theory around how we attach to our primary caregivers when we were really young. And when I mean attached, it's really about nervous system and the patterning that we develop in our nervous system around co-regulation and a feeling of sense of trust with our primary caregivers that our needs are going to get met consistently or consistently enough that we didn't have terror, you know, when we form these inherent senses of learning to trust other people or adaptive strategies to stay in connection or ways in which we coped when we were really young that are really in our nervous system. And what is so fascinating is that when we become an adult and we attach to another adult, these same strategies show up in our adult relationships. So it's, when you really look at it, you start to understand the underpinning or the blueprint was laid down really early on. And you can have some compassion for yourself if you experience some attachment anxiety. Yes. And that when I was reading up on you and this whole thing about nervous system, which I really want to dive into because mm. I think that's really important and probably not talked about enough. But before getting into that, can you just give some like how could someone characterize themselves as an anxious attachment style person for someone who isn't familiar with it? Like what are some signs of that characteristics, ways that we relate in our relationships? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, like traditional love addiction or codependency could very easily fall into that category, but really the style of anxious is someone who becomes preoccupied when they feel scared and tries to get back into connection. And so hypervigilant of anything that could resemble abandonment because the amygdala is like a very aware of how can I get abandoned right now? So consciously or unconsciously overextending yourself, very empathic, usually very sensitive people, you know, a lot of the codependency traits in terms of, you know, sometimes lower self-worth, sometimes bigger givers, but aren't great at receiving. And I would say the hypervigilance when the activating strategies kick in, someone with anxious attachment is just trying to get back into connection. So they'll do a lot of things to try, you know, you might text a lot of times in a row, you, your system is fight flight. So usually there's a fight or a, a wanting to do something to get back into connection with your partner, because being in disconnection is very painful for everyone and extremely painful for someone who's anxiously attached. I remember when I was first learning about this, the idea of like testing your partner or testing the commitment within the relationship. And like, you know, I was definitely the person in relationships. I would be like, what if this happened? Would you still like constantly assessing how I, where I stood and constantly like asking questions or putting the relationship to a test to make sure that I was safe and secure within the relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's really common. I mean, what your, your inner little girl is saying, will you love me if, will yeah. you unconditionally be with me if, you know, I'm feeling scared right now. So I'm going to come up with these 
scenarios to prove that you're really not going anywhere. Ironically, it can end up pushing the person away, but it's just a, an insecurity and you're trying to come up with strategies in terms to make yourself feel safer in that moment. But the feeling of unsafety lives inside of you. That's just what you're doing to try to cope with it. Yes. Well, I remember hearing that the phrase, like if it's hysteric, it's historic kind of a thing. And like having very disproportionate reactions to things that that happened within relationships. And I constantly like keeping score of they reached out this many times. So I'm safe. And like it goes into the nervous system. Like I in past relationships, I felt like my nervous system was constantly shot. And, you know, I was someone that used to have like the brown paper bag panic attacks within relationships. And I'd love if you could talk more about like this idea of how does our nervous system co-regulate with the other person? And then how does it put it on such high alert? Well, okay. So co-regulation is kind of when you're upset and usually anxious people are a little bit more dependent in that moment to have someone help them calm down because self-regulation wasn't built. The neural wiring wasn't built really strong when we were young. So when we're young, I won't get too geeky into the science, but we're not born with a parasympathetic nervous system. So our mom is a stand-in for that. So we have a lot of sympathetic, which is fight, flight, a lot of activation. And she comes and soothes us. If she's been stressed out or something major is going on in her life and she's not soothing enough for us, we don't develop the ability to self-soothe without proper co-regulation. So that's why when we become an adult, it's really important to co-regulate with people who can really be attentive, warm. It's part of the path to earn security. But what happens is we usually partner with people who can't self-soothe us in that moment. And because of sometimes avoidant people are attracted to anxious people and they literally can't show up in that way. They're also being activated and they distance themselves. So we can get really activated and worked up and we want them to help us calm down in that moment. We're in activation, fight, flight. And so it's a fear of being abandoned, but a fear of disconnection and it's scary. And this is why I wrote the book is that understanding what's going on in your body. If it's hysteria you use, which is great. If it's sensational in your body. And that's like, we have a heart brain, we have a gut brain. If your body is exploding inside with pain or dread or are just these awful sensations, we know that it's embedded trauma. And I use that word trauma lately because everyone thinks, oh, I wasn't. We know somewhere as a baby, you didn't feel safe in disconnection. And sensation is what we store before we store memory because we don't have implicit memory right away. We store sensations in our body. So when we're in a relationship with someone later on and we attach to them and they go, distant on us, or they go cold, or they, you know, have a blank stare, or they're in a dissociated state, our body lights up. It's preparing like this is scary when our partner's not there. Because when we were a baby, we learned when our mom's not there, I mean, we literally could die, right? Yeah. So those sensations, ironically, they get embedded in our body, and they get reenacted in our adult life. So sometimes they might not make rational sense in that moment. But that's how we adapted to survive. You know, our body is trying to help us survive. The only thing is it's archaic in the sense that we have to learn how to self-regulate through proper co-regulation and through healing anxious attachment, which we can talk about too. And we have to learn that sometimes the person that we want to fix the anxiety isn't actually how we heal anxious attachment. So that person might not be capable of holding space for the overactivated parts within you, which can be very painful because again, it goes back to early 
childhood and how we attach to our romantic partners. I think this is like so fascinating to me. And I guess this is more of like a personal question, but for me, I was never great at being like, this is what I need to feel safe. I would just kind of be like, I feel unsafe, like, and would expect the other person. I always had this fear of asking for what I wanted. Is that something that's also associated with anxious attachment is where you don't want to ask for exactly what you need because you're afraid it won't be fulfilled or you're afraid someone will say no. Yeah. I mean, and avoidant too, like both Mm -hmm. uh, struggle asking for what their actual needs are, but for an anxious person, they won't ask for what their needs are because of a fear of abandonment underneath, you know? So there's always like a motivation of like, I can't be my true self or I can't express my vulnerability or my neediness. I hate that word because I might scare off my partner where an avoidant person will say, I can't express my needs because deep unconsciously, I, they won't get met. Or if I show too much of my own vulnerability, I will get abandoned. Some of that's conscious and unconscious, but I think, you know, a lot of anxious people, or when you really look at healing, sometimes they're not even aware of what they actually need because we can be so focused on what other people need and be such great caretakers. And so attuned to the external world that sometimes anxious people aren't really in tune with what they actually need there's so many different levels to that. So asking for your needs is really important. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, you know, I've been married to my husband for four years now, and it's something I still really struggle with. And, you know, we've learned how to work around it where he says, like, tell me exactly what you need to like feel safe right now. So it's more of like this direct communication, but it took a long time to get to that place. And How wonderful though, how healing for you that he's able to help you kind of get brave in that area. Yeah. And I still have a lot of fear, like asking for what I need and not just in relationships, but also like with friends or with my family members. And so, you know, it is definitely like a lifelong thing that I've been able to work through. And I think it's such a a freeing thing. And most of my audience is going through breakup. So I want to talk about like the loss of a relationship when you're someone who is anxious. And again, speaking from personal experience, I imagine that because you have to be so heightened when you're in a relationship with anxious attachment style, it takes up a lot of your mental capacity. It just, I think you put so much into the relationship and you think about the relationship so much that you end up neglecting other areas of your life. And so when the breakup happens, it feels like it takes everything from you because you've kind of neglected other areas to focus all of your energy on keeping this relationship okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, you zero in because it feels so unsafe. You have to zero in as a survival tactic, right? And so, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, this person dropped off the map and I don't see them anymore. The truth is an activated attachment style is going to make you really focus on the target of getting back into connection. And you're activated. So you're activated in a sympathetic way. So sometimes when you break up and there's a piece and I talk about it, it's there's a little bit of self-abandonment as an adaptation. I have to leave myself and track this person in order to get back into connection, because this is what I learned as a survival net, you know, so I'm going to be aware of them. I'm going to put my energy in them. I'm going to pre- be preoccupied with them because that keeps their energy close to mine. That's, those are all protections around the abandonment. And I often find that when the, the separation can be a little bit harder, 
I think anxious people love really big and have the biggest hearts ever. And I also think because of this, sometimes the self-abandonment, it can be daunting to kind of come back home to themselves. But that's a very much the work. If you're in a long-term relationship with someone, the coming home to yourself and you're anxious happens in the relationship too. Like there's cycles where you're coming home to yourself, even in your relationship. But when you're breaking up, you know, there's a lot of, cumulative grief. There's a lot of, maybe you abandoned yourself and there's no shame with that because that's an adaptive way of being to try to get your needs met. So you have to revisit yourself and it can be a little bit harder. I mean, for lack of a better word, but I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, they're big lovers. Anxious people are usually all in and yeah. And when they leave, it can be cumulative or it can be just the abandonment wound again is revisited because loss you have to remember with anxious attachment, loss or disconnection is a familiar pattern. So a lot of anxious people avoid breakup even because we know how much pain is going to come from the disconnection. I mean, our very system tries to avoid that. So it's, it's a hard process. It, it's a beautiful process back home, you know, to yourself. But I mean, getting like the right support and podcasts like this and really learning how normal it is to go through all these experiences when you're breaking up, especially if you have anxious attachment, you know, and and I would say getting the right support around you, you might feel like crawling up in a ball and dying, but being around supportive people, family and friends as much as possible is that one path to realizing you don't have to suffer completely alone. And hopefully you're not. And I know you talk about this in your book, but the idea of tactics, can you share anything on tactics of like how you can come back home to yourself, because I think I finally was able to do that after so many breakups. And I think the reason that I'm able to have like navigate this really well in a current relationship is because I did that when I was single and I found safety. I guess I like found out how to self-soothe as an adult, you know, Mm -hmm. which I think is such an important skill. Yeah. And I think it's really important to realize that some people don't have the wiring to self-soothe. So learning is because you were around safe enough people to internalize it and build the new neural pathways. I would say, you know, coming home to those listeners, a big piece of what I do is grief. And so when you really want to heal anxious attachment, it's getting in touch with some of those earlier experiences too, where you felt left or not supported and starting to have like a shift in your perspective in terms of your developmental process and being more in touch with the the actual real abandonment wound and experiencing it through the right support as it surfaces to hold it in a new way so that you don't spend your life scared of it and having all these behaviors to do in your next relationship. Like, so the wound lives in you and the way to heal it is through healthy relationships. Like you can't heal anxious attachment alone Hmm. and anxious people do better if they can learn. And if you're single right now and you're, if you can learn to depend on dependable people now, you can spread your dependency out in healthy ways with co-regulation. You can learn to trust people that way. When you meet your next romantic partner, they don't become your whole world you can hopefully integrate them in. And so the more you depend and heal and be in community with really non-judgmental people who can be there for you if you get dysregulated, 
the more you can do that, the less likely you are to like drop your whole life and make your new partner the center of your world. I mean, there's a whole process there we could talk about, but really dependable, safe people working through your feelings with those people rather than your romantic partner is a good place to start if you're single right now. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important leaning. I think there's a lot of beautiful things about going through a breakup. I think one of them is like being forced to rely on other people, especially if you're someone who tends to lose themselves in relationships. And I know for me, losing lots of friendships in relationships, there were times that I felt ashamed to go back to those people and say like, I'm sorry this is what happened. I'm here now. But it was always such an important piece. And this is kind of a loaded question. But if we talk about like responsibility in this, because this question, I get a lot of like, what's my responsibility as an anxious attachment person? And then what is the responsibility of my partner or of the relationship to help me feel safe? Like, where does that responsibility kind of split. And I think I get this question a lot where people will say, will blame themselves for the relationship not working because of their anxious attachment style, but then they were also with an avoidant partner. So I guess let's talk about like kind of responsibility of partner relationship versus personal responsibility. I think, and I talk about like this unconscious pact that we get into, and sometimes our our wounded part wants our partner to soothe us. And in the beginning, sometimes they do. And I think what happens is we move through power struggle in different phases when our partner is less available really activates us. And there's a lot of blaming and betrayal that actually can come up because now this person who was making us feel so special and, you know, complete, now they're busy and distracted. And now we have to deal with a lit up anxious attachment style. It's never our partner's job to fix our anxiety. It is our partner's job to be curious, to perhaps make compromises, to understand that if we need extra reassurance that they can give us, and a secure person will not have a hard time giving extra reassurance. The problem is if an avoidant person can't give reassurance if they're also in an activated state. And I think what people don't realize, and I have a lot of compassion, I explain both avoidance and anxious because I think Understanding the other end of the spectrum is a really helpful thing for anxious people to not personalize so much of the, oh, well, they just walked away or they just shut down. I mean, they're in a survival state too. But I think when you're activated and they can't be there for you, when you're moving towards someone in an activated state and you're hyperventilating and they get activated, you're not looking for connection. You're looking to calm down in that moment. And so if their system is reading danger for whatever reason, because they were suffocated as a kid, or if they're super avoidant, they're going to go in the other direction. And that's painful. So if in those moments, you can realize they're not capable of helping my anxiety, not because they don't love me, not because they don't care, because we get stuck in the story, but their system is activated too. And it's hard because our system gets activated and you can see it. But with an avoidant person, they look very stoic a lot of the time. You can't see the anxiety that's underneath. So when they can't meet us and help us, we can blame them and get really angry with them. And, you know, we can talk about the anxious avoidant dance. But I guess what you're asking me is, 
is sometimes when your little, I call it like your little girl is up and she's really anxious, having more people to depend on, realizing you're, it's not your the sole purpose of your partner's job to always soothe that. But the other, many people to depend on will internalize the ability to self-soothe a little more, which is exactly the missing link. The regulation is the missing link in an anxious person. So I think it's our partner's job to be conscious. I mean, I remember when I first started dating my husband, I was like, can you just please return text messages like within a timely fashion? Like I, I was straight out. And for those listening, like know what your needs are. Don't act like, you know, I would not be okay if you avoided me for three days. If, if you dropped off and ghosted, like that's a red flag for an anxious person. If that makes you excited, you're setting yourself up for like major trauma reenactment, like know what your needs are. And anxious people need a little more reassurance. And if you can partner with someone who doesn't mind giving you that, that's easier path for like co-healing or for you to heal. And to be upfront about that in the beginning is really like, you're going to get rid of the people who are just going to activate you and don't create as safe of a space for healing. I do believe anxious and avoidant people can heal. It's just a lot of awareness. And when you say, what's our responsibility? It depends. I mean, depending on your level of awareness, you know, and that's where compassion, some people aren't aware that what's really going on on an unconscious level or with their nervous system. So they're blaming their partner and they're not at fault there. But I think the first step is to start to become aware of your nervous system and what is really activated and where does this really come from so that you don't project all the pain into your relationship. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It is so important to share your thoughts and feelings while going through a breakup, especially if it's something you're feeling any guilt or shame around. I know whenever I'm struggling with a certain thought or situation and I keep it to myself, it gets heavier and heavier and feels harder and harder to manage. I truly believe we are as sick as our secrets. Therapy has always been a safe space for me to have a judgment-free zone to get things off my chest. Whether it's something from my past, a current struggle, or something I'm anxious about in the future, I always feel lighter when I'm able to share something that feels scary. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartbreak today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartbreak. If you are a listener of this podcast, you know I warn about how your phone can either be a great tool or a huge obstacle when it comes to getting over your breakup. Instead of spending time on your phone trying to figure out what your ex is up to, why not spend some time engaging in a super fun mystery game that will help take your mind off your breakup? June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I am such a big mystery and puzzle fan, so this game has been so fun for me to get into. When I'm looking for a little escape from reality during the day or a way to relax that doesn't involve social media, it's been so fun to use my brain in a new way by diving into June's captivating quest and engaging my sense of observation to find the hidden clues. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
A question I get asked all the time is, is it normal for a breakup to feel more intense during my period? And the answer is yes. PMS is already so hard to deal with. And then you throw a breakup into that. And I know for me, PMS can make me feel anxious, exhausted, starving, and sad. Not a great combo. And that's why I love using and recommending Hormone Harmony by Happy Mammoth, which can make PMS easier to manage and has helped reduce those anxious feelings and low moods I experience around my period. And fun fact, a bottle is sold every 24 seconds. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens, which help the body adapt to any stressors like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. Hormones can make us feel so out of whack, and I agree with the most commonly used phrase in their 17,000 reviews, which is that it does make you feel like yourself again. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code HEARTBREAK at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code HEARTBREAK for 15% off today. I think the awareness part is huge. And, you know, there are times when I get activated and like, I can't see that this is not my husband. I like, to me, it's like all him. This is the relationship. But then there are times where I can say, I'm feeling super triggered. I'm feeling like this is bringing me back to when I was a kid and I can like walk through it Uh and it like gets it kind of diffuses the situation and we can like more talk through it. But I think the awareness part is, is huge. And I know for me, what's been really helpful is in the past in relationships, when I asked for reassurance, I had partners that would make that their, like they would think it was their problem. They would take it on and like, take it personally that I was saying they weren't being a good partner Mm -hmm. where I think it's really important to be in a relationship where you can express your feelings and the other person doesn't necessarily take them on there to like holding space for you instead of taking that all on themselves and taking it personal. And then I'm ending up like reassuring them, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, two things you said. The first thing you said, you know, some days in myself included where you said some days I'm able to link it back. Some days I'm more reactive that's like everyone, like some days you're just more resourced and some days there are too many stressors or their inner or outer cue is so big that you can't help yourself. And I think who needs more shame to the mix? If you hit rage, that's because there's a hairline in the back of your neck that if you get scared enough, rage as a baby is actually the reaction you're supposed to have when you're not getting the response that you need. So it's automatic. It is automatic. You can't always be that aware What happens sometimes if it's not that big of a trigger is what you're explaining. There's like a dual awareness that forms where you're like, oh, this is happening in the here and now, but I sense that it's old. I can feel into these sensations. Now I can start to say, okay, so 20% is happening with my partner here and now, and 80% has got some history. So it's a little bit of both. And I think once you start to really start to do that work, you start to see this isn't all on my partner, but with compassion for yourself. I mean, you adapted this way. And then I think when you shift, they shift too. And I, you said something else that I wanted to comment on about in your relationship. What was the second piece that you Well, I was just about? saying like, it's been so helpful to have a partner that can just hold space instead of taking on my insecurities. Oh, yeah. And I think you have to frame it to whomever you're dating as this is my stuff. You're not responsible for it, but you can help me with it by being as responsive as possible. And I learned that even when you're not right, this is where the trust comes in. When my husband doesn't text me back, I know he's just busy at work, but that took many, many years 
of me, like him texting me and me realizing he's just busy at work. Now, if he's really pissed off, he doesn't respond to my texts and I know it, but it's not that the, that the person you're dating has to be perfect. It's just like co-regulating with your mom. Your mom is actually out of sync 50% of the time. What happens is that we learn to trust that when that person's out of sync, their intentions are good. And that's where the difference is. So when this person, when my husband doesn't text me back, he's probably just busy 80% of the time. If my system's relaxed enough or 90, I'm assuming he's just busy. He's never abandoned me. He's not. So I'm having these conversations with myself to deescalate myself. But if the trust takes time, so it's dating someone enough to know, even when they're out of sync, I've developed enough trust with them that they probably left their phone at home or, you know, that you're jumping to better conclusions than what your system might be firing off. So thinking of things that like just help with like general anxiety and like does things like exercise and meditation and like things that you can do yourself, like does that help with activation within relationships? Yeah. I mean, so when your nervous system is activated, your brain is trying to make up a story in the here and now of what's going on in your body, right? The only system that actually can trick your body back into a state of safety is your respiratory system. So as cliche as I am as a psychotherapist, but inhaling and then extending your exhales, trick your body into like, there's no cyber tooth bear or whatever. There's nothing chasing me right now. So if you can drop the story, I say, you know, stop putting gasoline on the story because they were only escalating it and just start to do some deep breathing. That's very helpful. Another person's nervous system, calm nervous system. If not that friend, that's like, oh yeah, he's an asshole or whatever. But another person that's just like, wow, this must be really scary for you. And it just can, you can, sense that they're in event, we call it a ventral state, but in this open state of connection where they're able to be present for you while you're anxious, their system will actually regulate. And that is co-regulation. Are there other things? I mean, there's like some things you can tell yourself. And I think this is why I wrote the book is like, when you better understand yourself, I think you can start to have like the shifted perspective of your own experience. Even when you're in your own experience, you start to not feel crazy. I mean, essentially I wrote this book because at times I was feeling crazy about what Mm -hmm. was going on in my body. And I read every book on codependency, every book on love addiction, and none of them explained like the sensational, like my gut, my heart, like it never explained these things. So when you can really understand it and you're in it, I think that's when you start to develop this dual awareness. Like this is neurally like wiring that's being laid down as scary as it is. Who can I call? Where can I get into a safe place and breathe? Yoga or meditation does build the frontal cortex part of your brain. So it it is that awareness or practicing that kind of awareness, that observer awareness of you creating that space will help sometimes slow down the reaction time. And so, yeah, I think those practices are great in terms of giving you space between what's upsetting you and that reaction. And there's science around like, you know, building the, the frontal cortex up a little bit with meditation. And it's like that meditation where you can just become more of an observer. Like we're mm-hmm. trying to get you to be that observer. We're trying to get you out of some of these scarier states. Yeah. And I mean, I'm even, I feel like I've, you know, learned so much about this over the years, but even just listening to you now, it's like, there's so much of, I should know how to handle this. There's so much like self blame and shame when it comes to something like this, instead of looking at it, like 
this is how I'm wired. Like we're all wired differently. And so instead of trying to, you know, change the wiring, which I think you can do slightly, but not, not entirely instead of like, how can I feel safe with this current wiring? And I remember like the very first secure attachments that I had with friends and it happened first with friendships. And I remember I always had this friend that I would call when I was feeling insecure and she would say like, let's look at the facts. Like, let's look at, has he ever done this to you? Has this ever happened? Like, and I totally have the friends where I, if I want to be mad and like vent and they'll totally, you know, do that with me. But when I'm feeling like I'm spiraling Mm-hmm. I shared this on the podcast before, but I had a friend, it was so hard for me to ask for help. So I had a best friend. I would just text the word spiraling to her and she would just mm-hmm. know to call me and like kind of help mm-hmm. soothe me through that. But just getting those kind of things set up, I think. I have the most amazing friend who has been in my life in and out. And he's like, Mr. Reliable. He's like a father figure to me. So I understand. And I think it's important to have like several safe people. And I think really, I mean, yeah, venting is okay, but when you start to do some of your own work and you really start to see how you developed, usually what happens is there's compassion for the other person's behaviors and mistakes a little bit more. Maybe mm-hmm. you're not okay with the behaviors. Maybe your partner's doing behaviors you don't like, but when you do the work, you start to understand everything is a strategy. So you start to be more conscious of like the dance altogether. So there tends to be a little less blaming when you've done a little more of your own healing. It's just mirroring in that way, you know? Yeah. And I think too, there's also like, I'm just thinking about this through the lens of a breakup. I think going through a breakup and kind of reflecting back on this, sometimes it's not necessarily like this person was so wrong or I was so wrong. It was just like two people had two different wiring and they just didn't mesh well together. And like, and that's okay. You know, it's not necessarily like, your fault for being quote unquote, super needy. And it's not necessarily their fault. It really just comes down to like two people who weren't compatible in that way. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to throw a little science at you just so you understand that. So when you're a baby, uh, you experience your mom early on as like totally loving or terrifying because she's like, there's these extreme experiences that you have going on. And So she's either meeting all your needs and then you're slowly integrating all of her as developmental process happens, but there's a splitting that can happen. So when you become an adult and you're experiencing pain with someone else, a natural defense is to split. A natural defense is to make them bad because if we can make them bad, we can put distance between them and us, right? And that is a way of protecting us from them is making them bad. So when you're seeing all the bad in your partner, just know that you're in pain and you're trying to protect yourself from them. But the truth is, is no one's all bad and no one's all good. But I think when you break up, there are different phases that you go through. But part of seeing them all bad is a protector that you're running away from the pain. And then I think as you move through grief, you integrate all of the experiences. You know, some people they'll see, they'll go through all the bad times and then they'll get a memory of a good time and they'll call the person back. And so there's these like very vacillating experiences in terms of the grief process. And it's like, it's really important. I have this exercise in one of my detox courses, write a letter, a goodbye letter to all the good times, 
write a goodbye letter to all the bad times and write a goodbye letter to all the possibilities. And it's really the possibilities that get people really sad, but we're writing where we need to keep in mind that the whole person is there, you know, and it, splitting is really just a way in which you're protecting yourself. And I know if you're listening, you probably think, yeah, but he's such a this or that or whatever. Yeah. Maybe he's got really bad behaviors because he's pretty wounded on that side too. So you can start looking at people like, okay, some of his behaviors are things I'll never put up with again. And that's important to know. And those behaviors are there because something that he went through that he learned these, you know, awful things, so to speak. So starting to look through it in that lens, because if you were together for a really long time, the chances are, even if the good times were really long ago, there were still good times that brought you usually together. Absolutely. Yeah. And I always tell people like, they say, how do I know if I'm over the breakup? Like a big way that I've always been able to tell is like when I can look at the person super objectively where I'm like, we had a lot of good times. We had some bad times. I can see just you as like another human being. Like it's not so much charged of where you were the best thing in the entire world or you were like the biggest piece of shit. It's like you're just yeah. another human being that I shared a chapter of my life with. And I'm grateful for the good times. And I'm also grateful for the lessons that you taught me. And that kind of brings me to my last question that I wanted to ask you is when someone is coming out of a breakup and they are anxiously attached. I get questions of how do I know someone can show up for me when I'm just in the beginning of like a dating stage? So are there certain questions or things to look out for that you would suggest when people do start dating again? Yeah. I mean, it's really hard. So anxiously attached people are prone to love bombers more. And we could talk about the neurochemicals as to why, but if they're getting bathed in dopamine and all the feel good chemicals in the beginning, they can love being the center of the world. Right. And so the thing about love bombing is sometimes it's not in, always intentional. It's not always a conscious thing that the other person's doing, like literally are feeling dopamine too, and they're sending it all your way. So if someone is coming on really strong, you just want to back it up a little bit and go a little bit slower. I think being honest about your attachment needs and your attachment style up front. So love bombing is different than consistent communication. So you can tell a lot by how someone consistently communicates. In fact, if someone's busy, but then they text you back later and they tell you that they're busy and they explain why, you know, like there's a lot of subtle peekaboo things that go on in the beginning. And you just want to see, is this person consistent and reliable enough? Are they love bombing me? Do I need to slow down? Are they idealizing me too much or me them? And we don't really know how the relationship is going to pan out until we get into some conflict and rupture. We call it rupture and repair. And that actually brings the relationship closer, but can send someone with anxious attachment to a lot of fear. A relationship can be great, but until you fight and until you kind of get into some of the harder things, you don't know how you're going to navigate some of those more extreme moments. So keep yourself grounded in the here and now, and, you know, be with what's here and now a little bit more. I mean, there's some red flags. If you're sitting down and you're dating and the person on the other end of the date is not disclosing anything about their internal life. So you want to make sure anxious people can overshare, right? And they think that's vulnerability or intimate, but it's 
you really want to share at a pace where you're both being intimate and you want to make sure that the other person isn't just being attentive and really there for you because that feels wonderful, right? But they're able to reflect on their own inner experience as well. And so that just shows that they have a level of vulnerability that you're going to need for later down in the relationship. So those are, I would say, like the things you kind of, you want to watch out for. You want to pace yourself and yeah, there's no like true way to do it right. But there are some things that you want to listen to if it's too fast, or if you are like, I come back from that date and that person was so attentive and asked me all these questions all night long, but they didn't really share any emotion about themselves or anything that they've been through that personally was hard, or if they're not sharing, then they're not being intimate with you. You're just opening up to somebody. That's really interesting. I never thought I'm definitely an overshare. So, but that is very spot on. And I think learning that like a slow burn while it's not as like exciting and like, it's not quite as soothing in the beginning, it's like that consistent slower burn in a relationship will ultimately end up making you feel so much safer. Yeah. Like I was just counseling one of my clients and I adore her. She came out of like this very heightened relationship, which I'm so glad that she was out because I think he had some sex addiction and things going on. And she started dating someone new and she's like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel as exciting or as intense. And I'm like, let's just stay with it. Let's just stay with it. And then I'd see her come up with reasons to like kind of get rid of him or compare him to her ex. And I'm like, let's just stay with it. Let's, and it just grows. Yeah. It grows in a different way. And I'm not knocking like an intense relationship. Don't get me wrong. Like there's no one way, but don't throw out a relationship that has the potential to grow slowly because it's not as intense as what you're used to. Exactly. Yeah. That was something that I definitely had to learn as well. But I would love if you could talk about your book where people can find it, I assume Amazon, but I will a hundred percent be reading that when it comes out because I am looking forward to learning more about myself as well. I'm so excited to offer this book. I've been working so long on it. It's, It's truly, it's called Anxiously Attached, Becoming More Secure in Life and Love. And I break it down for you, not just on the the anxious side, but also on the avoidance side. Cause I think anxious people really want to understand the other, and you kind of need to understand the other side of the coin. And so I give you a path to healing, you know, and it's about internalizing some things and really break down like what it takes to get to a secure attachment. And I also go through narcissism in a compassionate lens and other things that truly are things that are harder to really be in relationship with at all. So it's a beautiful book and it offers some exercises and some meditations in there so that you go introspective and you go into your body and you start to really look at your nervous system. Like we said, you just really start to understand yourself. And it's like the doorway into hopefully more of your healing journey. And um, I'm just excited. You can find it on Amazon and you know, other retailers, it's going to be everywhere. So we'll give you the link for it. But yeah, Yeah, and the the link for that will be in the show notes. And thank you so much for really diving into this topic. It's, you know, something that so many people can relate to. And so glad that you can shed such a compassionate, but also like scientific look at it, which I think is so important. Yeah. Thank you. And it's the science that makes it compassion. You know what I mean? It like takes, it validates it. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for having me. And I'm just happy to have gotten interviewed by someone who so deeply relates to the topic. I can feel that in my being. So I'm excited that we had this conversation. Me too. Well, thank you so much. 
I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you loved it, I hope you'll leave a review and share with your friends. If you're not already following me on Instagram, head to at your breakup bestie where I'm sharing new content almost every day. To join our Facebook group, Healing Hearts Club, where you can connect with thousands of people from all over the world going through breakups, head to the link in the show notes. And don't forget to check out my online courses for more in-depth help through your healing journey. I always end these episodes the same way, reminding you to be nice to yourself, stay connected with loved ones, and the biggest reminder is that this too shall pass. I promise.